You are listening to Go Doc Yourself, your weekly documentary book club. Listen in while we two errands dissect our most recent documentary find. Sometimes weird, sometimes mainstream, but always entertaining. Grab a cup of coffee and let's clutch. Hi, and welcome to Go Doc Yourself. I am Erin McCart. And I'm Erin McCourt. Welcome back, guys. It's our last week celebrating Pride. Mm -hmm. And I think we've done a pretty good job covering some history and stuff. Some pretty serious topics on one hand. And this one's no different. But this week we're going to cover Pray Away, which was done on Netflix, not in Netflix. I think technically it is a Netflix documentary. So it was in Netflix and on Netflix. So you weren't wrong. (laughs) There we go. Okay. It's set in 2021. It's an hour and 41 minutes long. Directed by Christine Stolakis, but also produced by like 100 people, one of which was Ryan Murphy, who does like American Horror Story and Glee and Pose and all of that. Yeah, he got a little nod um, on the last documentary for Disclosure. Yeah. Yeah. And also in association with Bloomhouse, which does a lot of horror. They're like real, like a real big horror production studio now and i'll watch pretty much anything they put out so i didn't realize that going into it i just kind of saw it as i was watching the credits i'm like well look at that hmm. I, mean, I mean why not branch some out big dogs on this one yeah <laughs> so they begin with a little bit of a definition of reparative or what i've commonly heard called conversion therapy and it's the attempt to change a person's sexual orientation by a religious leader a licensed counselor, or in peer support groups. Let us also say that it's pretty universally held that these are harmful practices, according to the major medical and mental health associations. Or peer support groups. So that's anyone who wants to talk to you about it in a a setting that they could just make you feel bad about yourself is essentially what that sums up. And this is really from the perspective of the religious parts of this, right? I don't know that there is not a conversion therapy that's happening outside of a religious, I don't know, hub, if you will. So mm-hmm. I thought that was interesting. I, I guess I didn't, I'm sure that there are licensed therapists that aren't necessarily Christian therapists or Christian counselors, but none of that was discussed in this. It was a little bit. Okay. Okay. A little bit farther down at one of the conferences, annual conferences, one of the cats there, we'll talk about him. But so they, they discuss it a, a little tiny bit. It is a very small subset, I believe, that just never got away from the fact that they feel like it's a psychological disorder. Agreed. But still, if he's talking at a conference, I think they were all religious conferences, but it's all the same, yeah, really. Yeah. 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 So this documentary opens up with Jeffrey McCall. He's one of a few cats that will follow through this. There's not a huge cast of characters in this one, so that's kind of mm-hmm. nice. He's at a strip mall. I don't know where. Just somewhere in the U.S. Yeah. And walking up to random people as they leave a store and asking if he can pray for them, if he can pray with them, if, you know, can I pray for you today? And... I have a couple of feelings about that, but let's say that Jeffrey, his story is he used to be trans. He used to be gay. He 
did drugs, he did all that, and he gave it all up for Jesus. So now he's living as a man, I'm assuming straight or or asexual mm-hmm. and clean, which that I'm very proud of him sure. for getting clean because that's awesome. not easy. Yeah. And he believes that Jesus can can transform you. And my thought was, why is it okay for Jesus to transform you, but it's not okay for you to transform yourself? But whatever. I thought that part of the story was interesting because he, at least the way it's shot, right? He starts by saying that he's trans. And then the next person he talks to that he was involved in drugs and alcohol. And then the next person he talks to that he was very promiscuous. And then the next time, next time he talked to somebody that he was a sex worker. So to me, it was like a total escalation. I don't know if all that is true. I mean, I'm not, you know, shit on somebody for telling their stuff, but it was just really interesting the way it was portrayed. Like the story just got bigger over time. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess my issue is, don't they, doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible, not that many Christians adhere to this, doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible that religion is for you? You're not supposed to be publicly bursting out of the seams with it because that's showing and you're doing it for someone else. You're not doing it for yourself then. So for you to be true, it should be for you. And this seems a bit showy. Like you can see me in passing and decide you want to pray for me and pray for me without asking me about it. That takes nothing on my part. I don't know. I don't, I didn't see the passage in the Bible. Now, granted, I haven't read it where you're supposed to stalk people outside of stores. <laughs> right. You know, just uh, right. But like I said, most people were, uh, at least the ones that they showed again, were open to praying together. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what else? You know, it's fine. So yeah, Jeffrey's going to be our resident pro-conversion therapy person throughout the documentary. <laughs> right. And how mm-hmm. much of this he did on his own versus like a treatment center. I, they don't really explain sure. his conversion other than he mm-hmm. found Jesus. Yeah. Right. So these people genuinely believe, genuinely believe that there is something wrong with being gay. And the Bible says you're born homosexual, but you can be changed. You can be washed. You can be reborn is what is believed here. I've, Right. That's the messaging of this group. Yes. Sure. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because we're talking to people who have come out on the other side. And they say both at the beginning and at the end that we were doing what we thought God wanted us to do. And that's heartbreaking, right? Because on the one side, at the beginning of it, they felt called to it. They felt like they were doing the right thing. And then you get to the other side and you're like, Jesus Christ, that caused a lot of problems. So it's interesting to see that arc. It really is. Because I think a lot of these people were raised Christian in an environment that they were in as they come out to their families and stuff like that. It is a problem. It's not accepted. And I think that's how they land in this situation in the first place. And so I think everybody wants validation. Everybody wants to fit in and be a you know community. And it's hard to be the black sheep, especially as a kid. You don't have a lot of options. So I think that seems to have fed into quite a bit of this. Like very, nobody in this documentary came to be what they're going to call Mm ex-gay as a grown-ass adult. I mean, everybody was, Uh, looked like they were, was there. Nope, Yvette. Yvette was, I think she said 27. Oh, okay. Okay. Let's talk about Yvette for a minute. 
they have so much footage of her talking and like this is from like the 90s and 2000s -hmm. because she was right in front of it she was their figurehead for a while she said she was a practicing lesbian for six years and when the person speaking to her asked what does practicing mean she said that means i was living the lifestyle not just struggling with the feelings so there's a big distinction there because for a lot of people just feeling that way doesn't make you gay. It just makes you gay once you act out on it and once you practice the lifestyle. But what you feel inside, that doesn't matter. Right. It's the demonstrative part of this, right? And I think that that's part of the indoctrination here. Like, they seem real unconcerned with your inner world and mostly just concerned with your outer world. So mm-hmm. um, you're right. I'm sorry. She did find the church at 27. I felt a lot of empathy for her because she said that a lot of her friends were dying of AIDS at the time that she decided to change her ways um, because death was all around her and her best friend died and also his partner died as a result of AIDS. So I think she was in a really vulnerable place when this came along and she said, yes, I've got to do something different because I can't do whatever I was doing before, um, which is heartbreaking. It is. She said 17 of her friends died of AIDS. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of people. And I don't know if I even have 17 friends, period. So, yeah, but you're old and grizzled. She was still 27. That's true. That's true. And by coming to the church, she really found the structure and the rules to be comforting and a relief. And I get it. I think that's very honest. So, Right. They tell you, you do this and you'll be saved. And it's like, all right, perfect. Now I know what I have to do. None of this wishy-washy bullshit. Mm -hmm. I have the recipe for life. Sounds great. Yeah. If only it were so easy. (laughs) I know. 100%. So let's jump over and talk to Michael Bussey. He said... He grew up when it was a crime, a sickness, and a sin to be gay. So we're talking about the 70s, mostly, 60s and Mm -hmm. 70s. Yeah. And he wanted to change. He didn't want to be gay because it was seen as such a horrible thing, as bad. Betrayed as bad. And he was part of the church, as a lot of these people were, and realized that they had support groups for, like, divorced parents and alcoholics and drug users, but... No groups for people who felt like he felt. And so he started one. He started his own group. And yeah, it was well received, right? It wasn't, Mm -hmm. I think that it brought forth a need and the need was appreciated. I mean, it was filled, right? Yeah. Yeah. He was surprised by how many people were there, how many people were just thankful to see that they weren't the only ones, right? And then... He hears of other ministries kind of popping up like theirs around the country. So it starts small. Like you said, we need to fill a gap. And then it just kind of grows from there. In 1976, they kind of got together with some of those other ministries in Anaheim. They did a big conference. And that's where Exodus was born. So Exodus is the main movement that we'll be talking about that a lot of other smaller ministries kind of feed into. Is that how you understood it? Yeah, that's absolutely the gist that I got. I do want to call out, there was an amazing promo vid and it's just straight up 80s. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. 
Oh my God. It's so, it's so glorious. It is so funny because some of the videos like from him are seventies and eighties. And then the ones from like Yvette are straight nineties, like the most brown lipstick you've ever seen straight hair. Oh yeah. It's really funny. It is funny. (laughs) Probably the only real funny part of this whole thing. Right. So as Exodus starts to begin, there are struggling Christians reaching out and even Leslie Stahl starts to, um, she brings it to the attention of the public, right? Cause they did a story on 60 minutes and it's called to be or not to be. And it talks about Exodus making ex gays. So again, we hear that ex gays terminology mm-hmm. and I don't know about you, but my family was a 60 minutes family. We had cinnamon rolls on Sunday nights and we watched 60 minutes and then we watched murder. She wrote, and it was so great. <laughs> I love that. You uh, see real murder yeah. and then fake murder right after. <laughs> Absolutely. 60 yeah. Minutes wasn't so much about true crime at that time, though. It was more of a news thing. Whereas I think like 2020 and 60 Minutes has gone almost towards true crime now, hasn't it? I would say so. But it, from my, rem- my rememberings, um, that's the first of those sort of more in-depth segment shows instead of just like a quick flyby, which is what the local news would do most of the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They would take like a topic and really explore it. Yeah. Right. I love that you did that. Yay. Yeah. It was super fun. We didn't have anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) So this is where we meet John Polk. He was once the most famous ex-gay person in the world. He was the figurehead for this movement, the most visible person. He toured around. He did um, conferences. He did news. He did talk shows. He was the one that you saw whenever they talked about this movement. He was an ex-gay man and married to an ex-lesbian woman. It seems like they're each other's beards, but (laughs) all right. Right. They went on Jerry Springer when he was still legit before it just became fighting all the time. Mm-hmm. I forgot that he was legit at one point in time as a regular talk show. And he was the mayor of Cincinnati at one point. Like, what a weird arc in his life. So, you know why he was no longer the mayor of Cincinnati, right? Uh, it's a drug scandal, right? Or Oh, I thought he wrote a bad check to a oh, sex worker. yes. I couldn't remember. <laughs> there were a few folks that uh, yeah. got caught with their hand in the cookie jar per se, but I couldn't remember exactly what Mm. ousted him, but still like had to have been a pretty prominent public figure to have been elected in the first place. And then just a cataclysmic downfall. Love it. Mm -hmm. Bad check. Yeah. And again, Um, I don't believe I don't have the references for that. That could be like, you know, eating pop rocks and drinking soda will kill you. It it totally doesn't probably is uncomfortable, but it it could be the same thing. Uh, yeah, urban yeah. legend. Urban legend. I like it. Yeah. And I'm sticking with it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah. So what's interesting to to me is that they kind of promote it as those who want to change can come and do this change, right? This is just people looking because they're looking for help because they don't want to be gay anymore. I have heard of it in a different way, more so people being forced in when they're young. And their family doesn't want to doesn't want a gay member of the family type of situation, right? So I've heard a lot of that on the news. So mm-hmm. I wonder how much of this 
is um, like Scientology, where they talk about, oh, it's great, it's wonderful, but the people in are like, no, it's not, you know. Yeah, they don't really discuss what they're recruiting or whatever is, right? So there's a little bit of discussion about that. But yeah, they don't kind of really talk about the split of who ends up in these organizations or in treatment here. Although Julie does have a little bit of a different story. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And when they show the videos of like the support groups, it looks like an AA meeting, right? It's been oh, 100%. 65 days since I've had homosexual thoughts or relations. And I was like, oh, okay. So it's an addiction. That's exactly what I wrote. Um, it's a combination of an AA meeting and a confessional. Yeah. It's interesting to treat homosexuality like an addiction, right? Yeah. And that's Michael again talking about they considered gay being a mental illness. I mean, we talked about that in one of our former documentaries, um, that that was pretty prevalent. And now it's recognized that's recognized as being wrong, right? So there was a moment where that caught up and it was no longer considered a mental illness, but I think that still was in the public consciousness. And so something I thought that was interesting when they talked about their philosophies was something in childhood made you gay. Okay. You're made not born and it's an abuse situation or it's inadequate parenting I'm sure it's your mother's fault somehow, because it always is your mom's fault. Yeah. And the idea was to resolve those issues and your innate heterosexuality, heterosexuality would emerge like a butterfly. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So they talk about the leaders and educators who are perpetuating this have zero qualifications or training. (laughs) Yeah. So let that sink yeah, in. They're just uh they're just out there testifying, yeah. Right. And the people who are in these groups are dealing with panic attacks, deep depressions, intentional overdoses, and suicide attempts, and a lot of guilty feelings. So this is not surface level stuff. It's like right horrible feelings on the inside, and you are getting treatment quotey fingers from people who have no qualifications to treat you for serious stuff. But God will show them the way. So that's okay. It'll be all fine. I just, when I hear stuff like this, like you must've been abused. I think of all the people who were abused that don't turn out gay. Cause again, the gay population isn't a large population. And I don't know of any woman who hasn't been sexually assaulted by a man. Literally do not know any woman who has not been sexually assaulted by man. And, but we're not all lesbians because of it. Or even in childhood, the statistics are pretty, pretty high for girls. It's like every two out of three girls are molested or something. It's, it's ridiculous. Right. Again, we're not all gay. So this doesn't hold a whole lot of water. But I think you can rationalize anything, right? Maybe we're all in denial or you know, whatever. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. It's latent. It's latent. Probably, probably. So we can move to Julie now if you want to. Well, I was just going to say, Michael starts to understand that he wasn't changing and the people he was supposed to be helping also weren't changing and he could no longer pretend that they were. And so he left Exodus in 1979. So although he started it, 
he left in 1979 and it grew without him. Right. And that's quick. If it started in 76 and he decides it's not for him, he's, which is, you know, your founder decides it's not really the jam. Um, then he leaves and it continues is really interesting. So I think that's when we've learned that you, as a cult, Yes. If something happens to the leader, you have to change the narrative, yeah, right? Yeah, 100%. Fit the new, yeah, yeah. new story. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about Julie then. So she talks about growing up as a happy kid. She did have a Baptist upbringing, which I was trying to force on everybody, but I was wrong. She wanted to be a good conservative Christian. So she wanted to be a good person. And this is in, let's say, 1993-ish. Um, There's some footage of James Dobson and the Rev. Jerry Falwell saying they're just basically shitting on gayness, right? It's just the worst and the devil and blah, blah, blah. They're dirty. um, They're scary. They're bad. This is the message that Julie gets. And that was pretty pervasive in the 90s, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. So she comes out to her mom at 16 as a lesbian. It doesn't necessarily go well. And her mom has her meet a guy named Ricky Chalette, who is an executive director of a group called Living Hope, which is affiliated with Exodus. Yeah, he uh, and Ricky, Ricky explains everything, right? So let's go to the whiteboard. This is how he explains it. Which is so shitty because I love when Katie Porter goes to the whiteboard. Yeah. I love her whiteboard. I I hate this whiteboard. I know. It has a lot of power, though, so I understand why he used the whiteboard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good communicator, unfortunately. Yeah. And you've got all the dry erase markers. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) he explains, a boy becomes gay because he has a bad relationship with his dad. Again, what about all those straight boys who have bad relationships with their dad? But that's beside the point. That's not what we're talking about here, guys. And also a a woman, if you have a bad relationship with your mother, you become a lesbian, I guess. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And here's the part that really pushed me right over the edge. She said, there's a sense of mystery when it comes to the same sex parent. And when it gets to adolescence, it becomes sexualized. So the complete opposite of what Freud said, first of all. (laughs) And I'm like, what the fuck? It becomes sexualized because it's a mystery. No. Right. So that's almost like the mystery part to me speaks of an absent parent, not a bad relationship. But, you know, nobody asked me. No. Well, and then so Julie's listening to this and she's like, okay, but I have a really good relationship with my mom. And he's like, oh, well, you must have been abused then. And she's like, no, I was not abused either. He's like, well, you must have forgotten that you were abused then. And she's 16. So she's like, oh, okay. Makes sense. You know, there's a whiteboard involved. Must be real. Yeah. She doesn't have a reason to question it, right? The whiteboard is legit. Yeah. It's for real. She said she didn't know if she could be straight, but she knew that that was the path to being good. And so that's the path she took. She wanted to. I like how earlier she had said when she was little, she just wanted to be friends with Jesus. I thought that was the sweetest thing I'd ever heard. I just want to be friends with Jesus. Yeah. And I think it would be really difficult when your mom freaks out on you. And if you have a good relationship with your parent and you don't want to disappoint, you know, those are strong ties. 
And I mean, there's a lot of kids that try to please their parents. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why we leave her for a little bit. And we come back to Jeffrey. So Jeffrey is our ex-trans, ex-sex worker, ex-drug user, ex-everything. He says when he found Jesus, he found for the first time someone who really loved him. And I'm sad for a couple of reasons. One, that you've never felt love from an actual person. And two, that you believe an imaginary an imaginary presence is the one that loves you versus finding love in the real world. That's sad. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's powerful to say he found acceptance somewhere. So no wonder he's, Mm -hmm. you know, running towards it as fast as humanly possible. Right. Yeah, we do see him at this point speaking to a congregation somewhere and talking about how TVs and movies showing homosexuality. And then he has this big tirade about schools are pushing hormones and surgery on your kids. So be real careful where you send your kids to school. And people in the congregation are like, yes, yes, absolutely. And Praise I'm like, Jesus. Mm-hmm. No. Let's be honest. The teachers are too busy to be pushing stuff on your kids. They got to get them uh, rubrics figured out. So, yeah, they got to make sure everyone passes very specific tests. They have no indication absolutely. of what you'll do in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. It, it is something. It is something. I, I've heard a gay person once say that they were like, you know, they're talking about, oh, we have to get rid of these books. They're banning all the books right now because this is pushing the homosexual agenda and it will turn the kids gay. And I'm like, there are so many there. I think I even said this in one of the previous ones, millions of straight books being read by gay kids that did not turn straight. So what? <laughs> well, again, two questions in yeah. these arguments, they immediately fall apart. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Yvette is becoming a more prominent role in her church group. Um, she's invited to talk in front of a bunch of ladies. She talks about, you know, how she was homosexual. She's no longer homosexual. She talks about the on the political level, they want to give homosexuals special rights, not equal, special rights, special minority status. So you got to fight against that. Oh, that was disgusting. But... After her talk, she said a woman in the front row asked if she'd be willing to relocate to D.C. So now they want to put her in an even more prominent position. This is now going to be her job. So she interviewed with the Family Research Council, gets a job with them. It's a very right-wing Christian group. And all the leadership were straight white men. I'm shocked. Shocked by this. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But they needed someone. They were looking for a spokesperson who had been gay. Because there are a lot of things they knew they couldn't say without looking like horrible people. But having someone who had been part of the gay community now coming in and saying the gay community is horrible. This is where we need to go. They could totally use that. Right. Especially as she's young and Mm -hmm. she has a Hispanic last name is what they say. And I'm like, okay, I guess or whatever. Mm -hmm. So she becomes their policy analyst or one of their policy analysts. And uh, she's able to discuss how, you know, the homosexual agenda is being forced on everybody. And I was like, finally, do I get to hear what it is? So I hear a lot about the gay agenda, but I don't, I've never seen like bullet points or like a nice list. I've never seen any of those. And so I'm, I'm Mm -hmm. really struggling to understand what the gay agenda is so I can look out for it. Of course. 
So be a lot of glitter. I mean, yeah, and it gets everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it was the the gay agenda, and then them gay rights were going to erode the rights of Christians. Right, family rights. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, my my rights don't take away from your rights, but it's okay for their rights to take away from mine. Is how I'm interpreting that. Well, I will say I think the Christian event. Hold on, let me try that again. Christian evangelical lobbyist groups are really good. And even Yvette says it here. They like to keep the faithful riled up. And how do you do that? You talk about the gays mm-hmm. and how they're mm-hmm. coming for your children or whatever. Yeah. We need the the lesbian Avengers. Yeah. So that's how you'll know people get out and vote is if you get them all. Well, yeah. All full of the riled spirit up. or whatever. Yeah. Full of spirit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> full of something. So Julie starts talking about the fact that she was at Living Hope from the ages of 16 to 25. That's a long time. And she, it wasn't like she lived there. It made me feel like she lived there, but she did not live there. She had weekly counseling sessions with Ricky, weekly group sessions, and a lunch at Ricky's house on Sunday afternoons. First of all, what grown-ass man calls himself Ricky? I just can't. It's problematic. These people. Yeah. But her entire life was kind of structured around not being gay. They had, she said, about 50 other kids there, but they were not allowed to contact each other outside of when they were in church because the church was afraid they would get together and just have crazy gay sex or any sex for that matter, I'm sure. But right. Yeah. Yeah. They're not really permissive of straight sex either. That's a great point. She had been a good softball player, but she certainly had to quit that because, as we all know, that's where the lesbians congregate is any softball situation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's legit. She had to go to a Christian college so she wouldn't become lesbian. This is Ricky and her mom working out her future to make sure she stays straight. Yeah. Yep. I like how she said she, she wouldn't become lesbian. And I'm like, she already came out as lesbian. That ship has sailed. But we got to reel it back in. We got to recapture that ship Mm -hmm. and like make it as if it never was. So denial, big deal here. Mm -hmm. Yes. So let's go to the 2006 Exodus Annual Conference. I don't know if it necessarily has to be 2006. They just flashed that number up there. But Randy Thomas, he was a former vice president of Exodus He's not largely prominent in this documentary, but he's there enough to talk about his experience. But he's like, people would go to these conferences to learn more about overcoming homosexual attractions. And I thought, what more is said here than is said at your church? It's probably the same rhetoric no matter where you go, I'd imagine. But he does talk about offering workshops that embrace masculinity and stuff. And I'm like, so it's just like, all football and well it's kind of what julie said right she right said she was 17 when she went to her first conference and they made the girls put on makeup because that's what they saw as feminine and they had the guys play football and i assume there was some crushing of beer cans as well i'm not sure but i mean they she did she did discuss that they didn't necessarily think that playing football would make you straight, but they were trying to give you another way to interact with men that wasn't sexual. 
And I'm like, there's a whole lot of groping involved in football. And butt smacking and stuff. I, (laughs) some out of touch. Come Um, on now. Yeah. Some out of touch stuff going on here. So. And we're going to put makeup on women and make them more attractive. That sounds like a great idea. But it's to other women away. Okay. They're going to be attractive to men. We've learned this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she also talks about (laughs) being up late with people and just really having a good time with people that she felt comfortable with at some of these conferences. So it's like, even the stuff they were trying to do backfired because people are just going to be people. So. Right. Right. It was like church camp at that point, which I know a cat that his mom got pregnant with him at the age of 15 at church camp. So we all know what happens at church camp. I mean, yeah, you get teens together. I don't know what they expect. So. Mm, Nefarious things. Mm. Right. We talked to John again. He talks about how the goal was to get married and be a father. That was his goal. That was the goal for all of them. You were told that you don't have to be attracted to all women, just one. Just one woman. All right. Sure. So the messaging was you find a female friend, you hang out, maybe some sexual feelings, some attraction, you know, blossoms. And that's how you know you're supposed to snatch her up. And I'm like, I hope she's reciprocal in these feelings and whatever. (laughs) And also what a great future for her that you're settling because she's just, you know, just got broad enough shoulders to get you there. If not, put some shoulder pads in. It'll be fine. Right? Yeah. He said when he was married to his wife, he didn't think he was gay anymore because to him, gay meant going to gay bars, having sex with men and associating with gay people. And he wasn't doing that. So he was basing gay, like a lot of other people, on behavior and not Mm -hmm. feelings. But he still felt very much gay. Like, he still was attracted to men and whatnot. He just didn't act out on it. Right. Nice foreshadowing. I appreciate that about you. (laughs) Well, yeah, and he realized that he... He was lying to everybody because he was telling them he no longer had feelings for men. He was not even tempted. None of that was even in him. So he would go on these talk shows and talk about how he totally did not think about men that way. He was not tempted in the least. He loved his wife and he just wanted all that pussy. So he was lying (laughs) and he knew he was lying and he feels bad about it now. But at the time he felt like he didn't have any other option, which I get. Sure. I'm sure there was pressure as he was, you know, the poster child of this whole to do. Right. But looking back now, he realized that there were people in the audience that probably felt like there was something wrong with them because they couldn't feel like that. And right. that's hard to think about. Yeah. yeah. So switching back to Jeffrey, he starts what he's calling the freedom March. And that's for those people that are like him. And he calls them overcomers, which is a terrible name. So on on the Facebook, there's a concerned mom that makes a phone call to Jeffrey about her 20-year-old trans son. Wow, he's her son is a trans woman. That's her whole point on this. And she obviously doesn't accept it. And so Jeffrey advises her to stand firm 
in her faith and make sure that she cuts her son out of her life. I don't know. It's just really horrible. He's been out for about six months at the time of this phone call. Like they have not been in communication or it's been limited or whatever. So here he is advising her to, you know, wash her hands of this kid until they come around. And that's difficult. It's so hard to watch. Yeah. He equates it to, if your child runs into the street, you need to grab them up and make sure they don't get hurt. And this is the same thing that you're saying strong and making sure your child doesn't get hurt. Now her child left because of her rejection of them. So they left. And this woman essentially is just calling Jeffrey because she wants confirmation that what she did was right. Cause I'm sure she misses her child. And he's like, no, 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 ma'am, you stay strong. You stay strong. You're doing what's right. And, uh, that's uh, so not good. I agree. I agree. So, you know, the people that you're supposed to most trust in this world, right? That's what parents and children should have together, right? A child should be able to trust their parent. You have totally ruined that trust with your kid. And how you'll have a relationship going forward, I would love to understand that. Well, they won't. And then they'll be upset because that child should respect me and, and I raise them. And why are they being disrespectful? They use that word a lot. And they're so confused how that child doesn't want to come see them anymore. And I'm like, well, it's pretty obvious to everyone else, ma'am. Right. Right. So in 2009, we're at the annual conference. There's Dr. Joseph Nicolosi. So he's a clinical psychologist treating men with same-sex attraction for over 30 years. So again, 30 years prior would have been around the time that this was still considered a psychological illness, mental illness. Um, But he's considered a maverick now because he's going against the medical consensus, which every now and then is true, right? When germ theory came out and, uh, you know, he's like, maybe we should wash our hands so women don't die after we cut up corpses and then we go deliver babies. And they're like, that's just fucking stupid. Sometimes you got to be rogue. 30 years on and more education, if you're still going this route, it might be maybe not the correct route. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that they talk about there are several pseudo-psychologists that are making a living, quotey fingers, curing gay people. And this offered some respectability to Exodus. And then mm-hmm. for the psychologists that were coming out or psychiatrists, whichever, it was like a nice pool of clients for you. So they had a nice symbiotic relationship. Yeah. It was a business relationship, right? Yeah. Right. Mm. And then they show this session video with this young man that is absolutely heartbreaking to watch. It's horrible. It is. Cause this kid's like, you know, I just feel broken. And the psychologist is like, you know, how do you feel broken? And the kid is just sobbing and it's just so hard. And also I'm like, I hope they got his permission to show that, but whatever. I thought the same thing. Yeah. That should be sacred. Right. And I hate seeing other people's therapy for that reason. Even in a documentary, I'm like, this shouldn't be okay. Yeah. And I mean, you're just laying all that shit out for somebody who's got an end goal in mind for you. And I don't know that that's, is that what therapy is? I mean, it's recovery from whatever your issue is, but 
you know, is recovery individual? I should hope so. Except for, I think the end goal should be the same of the fact that you don't need therapy anymore. Or, I mean, I think in reality, ongoing therapy is not a bad thing. It's not saying you're still being fixed, but it helps you talk through stuff with an unbiased person. Cause my, my friends are always going to be like, yeah, he's a dick. Dump him. You're the best. Blah, blah, blah. Right. They're going to support you in theory. Whereas the therapist might be like, listen, you're being a little bit of a C unit. You need to calm down. <laughs> Maybe rethink this. So I enjoy the fact of having a therapist who's not biased, but I don't know. I don't know what the end goal should be. Right. I'm just saying like these cats definitely have the end goal of you not being gay anymore. Right. But it, if you're not gay anymore, do you need to go to therapy? So it seems like you're curing your clientele out of, out of your own job. Does, does that make sense? Right. So do they need to continue this therapy to make sure them gay feelings don't come back? I mean, it seems to me that this is just how you live now is like, you're always getting treatment, which is also again, mm. a lot like Scientology. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. It absolutely. There are several things about this that I'm like, Oh Yeah. Yeah, it's real, real culty. Mm. See previous comments on many other episodes we've had where I call all religion cults. So Julie, from the time she's about 17, was being told that she's going to be the next leader of this group. She became like a poster child for their movement. She started giving testimony at conferences. Um, in 2011, she spoke at the annual convention. Um, and she spoke at a lot of different conferences for Exodus. And then she talks about the fact that in college, she was actually sexually assaulted. It was pretty, pretty bad. And the only people she told was in Living Hope. And then within a year, Ricky has decided she needs to incorporate this as part of her testimony. Because to him, this justifies her having feelings for women as well. Because, right, men are horrible and they treated me poorly and so that's why I gravitate towards women is what he wants her to say. And she wasn't comfortable with that, but she eventually did it because she wanted to please him and felt like she had to, I, I'm sure. But she didn't like it. She didn't like having it as part of her narrative. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's an authority figure, right? And she's mm -hmm. kind of been led up to this by having to have counseling sessions with him anyway. And she's a hell of a public speaker because again, we do see some footage of her, you know, addressing people and she's young and she's attractive and she's all those like weird things that we don't acknowledge that make us believe people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, but I thought how slimy to make her talk about something that personal. So yeah. 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 That was not okay. We see Jeffrey's gathering for the Freedom March. They all come into his house, someone's house. There's a house that everyone's gathering at <laughs> before the march. And uh, Aaron, tell me, tell me that every single person that walked in that door is not gay. Every one of them was still gay. I could tell. <laughs> My gaydar was going off. Right. I mean, there's a lot of joy in that room. <laughs> like, But it's so... <laughs> over the top right it's just like well it is there's a lot of sparkles oh so much yeah i was thinking just aesthetically it seemed very ah, ah. Um, flamboyant 
right? But yeah, when we get to the actual gathering. So one of the things that Jeffrey says that really pissed me off. Now, Jeffrey is a very likable person, even though the things that fall out of his mouth aren't necessarily okay. He comes across as a very soft, gentle, teddy bear type type person, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And not, not intimidating, not scary, because he's somewhat effeminate. Anyway. So he preaches that you have to obey God at all times, not just the big things, even the little things you need to. And I thought, well, two minutes later, you have a woman standing up there preaching and that's not okay in the Bible. And I'm pretty sure you're wearing mixed fabrics, sir. That's not okay in the Bible. No more shrampies for you. If you're going to go, go all in, right? When are we starting to stone people? Right. I mean, it's, it is very difficult because it's, I mean... Is there anything else you could say that could convey that obedience does nothing more than get you more shit you have to do? So, I don't know. And you're never good enough. So. No. Not for religion, no. And it's shopping cart religion, which every single religion does. This works for me and this is what I like, but I don't like the other things because I really want to eat shrimp. So, let's not think about that. I love that you think that your opinion counts as we both know you're only worth 30 shekels. So. And if I'm raped, I have to marry my rapist. So. It's neat. Yeah. yeah. Oh. But there's a whole lot of stomping and singing and dancing and laying of hands at this gathering. So it's a, it's a sight to behold guys. It's something. And we've seen this in a lot of other footage where the demonstrative aspect of it, it just looks like performance art to me. Like, look how into this I am, everybody. So Mm -hmm. I digress. Mm -hmm. So moving back to Julie, she discusses and reads about the first time she burned herself with a cigarette and the detachment Mm -hmm. that she felt. So she has moved on to self-harm because she just can't cope with some of the feelings that she's got about, you know, her inner world and her outer world just aren't matching up no matter how hard she tries. She is in a relationship with a woman at this point named Amanda, and she is kind of reading this to her partner and also to the camera. Right. But um, it's just, again, heartbreaking to hear that a young person finds a coping mechanism with self-harm. It's just, it's not good. It's not. She's so she's writing a book about her experience. And this is a passage from the book she's reading to her partner. Um, What I do like is how well she explained it. So as someone who has an extreme aversion to pain, I've never understood self harm. I've never asked. It's not my place to ask someone that that's a very personal topic, right? Mm -hmm. But Julie is very good about explaining that the dissociative nature of when she feels the pain and then also the self-soothing. So then she has a wound that she can take care of for a week or so as it heals. So there's a combination of, of those two things. And that really made sense to me. Again, I've never understood it before and I'm sure it's different for everybody, but it was interesting for her to explain that. And I really appreciated that about her passage. Right. Yeah. I agree with you. It is, um, it seems counterintuitive to people who don't understand it and have never been there, mm-hmm. but this is a nice window into how she made it make sense for her 
and how it worked. So yeah. anyway, I hope she just gets all the hugs. I think she just needs all the hugs for the rest of forever. I know. <laughs> I agree. Okay. So we kind of go back to John at this point and he is finding it harder and harder to keep his homosexuality at bay. Mm-hmm. His wife, Anne would find that he had been looking at porn and she would say to him, why can't you just obey? Which again is hitting on that weird obedience thing. Mm-hmm. And he says it's harder and harder as he gets older, despite having his family, which is was his big goal, right? And he considers ending his life if he's unable to be in a relationship with a man. So he's photographed after getting super duper drunk and he goes to a gay bar and he's recognized by the people in the gay bar because I assume he's kind of enemy number one, right? Yeah. Yes. So um, he's photographed and he like runs out trying to hide his face, but damage is done. He's been recognized as this. So. Yeah. So he's in DC for meetings when this happens. So he goes to Yvette's office because they're friends. They're working together essentially. And he comes into her office on that Monday morning and he's shaking. He knew the story was going to come out. So he tells her that he didn't know it was a gay bar and he had gone in to use the bathroom. Aww. That's sweet that you think anyone would believe that. No one believed it. But she remembers him just saying over and over again, I hope I didn't hurt the movement. I hope I didn't hurt the movement. Which is so hard. I'm like, dude, it, it, these people don't care about their own happiness and their own mental health or any of these things at this point, they only care about this movement, which that's not healthy for anybody or the movement for this matter. Yeah. Don't you think that it's interesting that the movement wouldn't embrace him for a stumble here? Right. Right. It's not. So in this case, it's not like an addiction because like those people who are addicted will get sober and then fall and get sober and fall and get so and eventually hopefully they get sober and stay sober but there are a lot of falls in between because it's not easy and Mm -hmm. so apparently that's not an option here ever um yeah the minute that the movement found out about it he was ousted you are a flawed human you can no longer be part of this group right we can't have any gaps in our presentation right like You know, no weak spots in the armor here. And then furthermore, he gets divorced and has had enough of it, I'm assuming. And um, they're divorced. So. I hope we still got to see his kids. They don't talk about his relationship with his kids now. And that's probably intentional. Probably. I hope he can still have a relationship with them. I'm guessing not. Brandy talks about how Exodus becomes more and more political. They're traveling to D.C. more and more to attend meetings and events with religious right leaders and power brokers. There is a huge push to do as much as they can while Republicans still hold power. So this is when W was in office and, you know, I think the Senate and the House were both Republican majority. So they're trying to push as much through knowing that he's at the end of his term. Who knows who's going to come in Mm -hmm. next? Mm hmm. And he said that he, so they were fighting against the gay marriage 
as we've discussed, he said he fought so hard because marriage, this is him talking to a group of people. This is not him talking to the documentaries. This is before that he fought so hard because marriage transcends us as godly, right? It's no longer, it's not an earthly bond. It's something that God gave us. And I thought marriage was there around well before Christianity. What the fuck, man? What about people who aren't religious? Are they not allowed to get married? Well, I mean, I just don't think they exist. Like they're outside. And even in this, they talk a lot about if you became, if you left the movement, like we often hear, it's like you don't exist anymore, right? You're shunned, you're ousted and all those things. So I don't know. Yeah. Right. You're suppressive as Scientology would call you. Mm -hmm. And, and they often talk about, these people talk about marriage is for a man and a woman because it's meant for procreation and sex is only meant for procreation. Guys do not enjoy it. Tooth thrust in a cough. You're done. Move on. <laughs> and my problem with that, I mean, I have a lot of problems with that, but what about people who are women who are past menopause? They're not allowed to have sex. They're not allowed to get married because they're no longer able to procreate. They're just dead to the world. Well, you've served your purpose. That's so, true. Yeah, that's true. God forbid you can't have children even at a young age. There'll be right. no sex or marriage for you. You better retire that sheet with a hole in it post haste. <laughs> no holes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Ugh. I just don't understand these I don't either. People. And it's something else. Yeah. Yvette starts working for Exodus in the summer of 2008. So right before Obama is elected. So she starts working on the Proposition 8 campaign. This is in California. So in Massachusetts, marriage became legal. And in California, marriage became legal. But Prop 8 was what they were trying to push through at the next election, which would have been November of that year, to make gay marriage illegal. Again, in California. Mm -hmm. It's a state right. legislation. Mm -hmm. But she did these events that were televised at all the churches. She equated gay marriage to pedophilia and sibling marriage and all it's that slippery slope logic that they use a lot like well what's to say you won't marry an animal then that's fucking stupid right so this is the attraction argument right so if you're attracted to somebody you should be allowed to marry them which i don't think is all that messaging was to allow gay marriage right no. but it was saying like look these yeah. are you know things we should consider and then of course they take it to the most outrageous, you know, outcomes just scare the shit out of people. So. Yep. Save the children. Yeah. We're back to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And she talks about, you have to tap into these fears. So there are people that are on the fence that are like, well, this doesn't affect my life one way or the other. I don't care. Why would I care? Mm -hmm. Vote for or against this. So you have to tap into their fears, the save the children bullshit, and that will hopefully push them onto your side. So they'll vote right. how you want them to vote. Mm -hmm. Ugh. There are churches telling people they need to vote yes for Prop 8. And I'm like, when did it become okay for churches to tell you how to vote? I mean, Was that in the 90s? When did that happen? I think they said with Reagan, right? So that's when it became mm -hmm. really political. And again, I say to you, the Rev. Jerry Falwell was at the head of that. Mm -hmm. So they are uh, experts in actioning their things. So, yeah. Well done, I guess, or whatever. Yeah. Use those powers for good people. And to no one's surprise, Pop A passes. And Randy said, watching 
his community, although it wasn't technically his community because he was outside mm-hmm. of the gay community, mm-hmm. but deep in his heart, he knew it was his community mourning. They were in the streets and mass mourning the proposition passing and what that meant. He said he felt horrible because he knew he had a part in pushing that agenda and that he was no longer the same person after that moment. That was like a defining moment for him. Yep. Yep. We go back to Yvette at this point and she is experiencing some anxiety and panic attacks when she's going to Exodus functions. Mm -hmm. She gets some help. She gets a therapist and they're able to identify what's going on. Um, She potentially has PTSD. And I think through a lot of discussion, she's able to figure out that she's bisexual, which hasn't really been part of these discussions either you're gay or you're straight. There's no other options in between, which I'm like, well, Kenzie said, we're all in the spectrum somewhere, y'all. So. Yeah. And he said that a long time ago. So, but yeah, you're right in the nineties and that it wasn't until the last 20 years or so that the B of the LGBTQ was legitimized for lack of a better word. If you liked women, even if, so as a woman, if you liked women and men, you were still considered gay because you liked women. So. Love those labels. Yeah, but she realized that being part of the ex-gay movement was more about belonging to a group and belonging to something, which I think a lot of people in church, that's what they go for, in theory, more than the religion is the community of it. So I understand how she would want to be part of something like that. It just kind of got out of control. Julie discusses how when she was at Living Hope, she was extremely depressed, didn't know why. Um, she didn't see it kind of as a result of them making her that way. I mean, if you're told that you're horrible all the time, eventually it's going to sink in, right? Mm-hmm. She's doing a lot of the a lot of work for them, seen as a leader in the movement. But there are more and more people who are defecting, although I think I wrote in here defecating. <laughs> <laughs> defecting from the group. So the XX gays, if you will. And Michael Bussey is helping them. So remember, he he started the group, he left in 1979, and now he's helping those people get out. And of course, like you said, if someone leaves the group, you don't hear from him again. But she wrote a blog post to put on the Exodus site one day. And essentially, at the end, she addresses the XX gays, telling them, I'm very sorry that you went through what you went through and I'm sorry that you don't feel like God loved you in this way or whatever. And I would love to hear your stories. It was a genuine expression of, you know, curiosity to hear what they had to say because the news Mm -hmm. is talking to these people, but she wanted to talk to them. And so Michael reaches out to her and they set up a televised event. Essentially. I didn't get who televised it. Did you write that down? I mean, I think this is all linked into, uh, Lisa Ling, because she was an investigative journalist. She may still be, but uh, she had some specials and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. She was a name at one, yeah. at one time at for a, time. a lot of mm-hmm. stuff like this. Yeah. Right. So you have a group of people on the Exodus side. You have Julie. You have Alan Chambers, who we meet at this time as well. He was the president at the time. And then you have the XX gays, the people who had survived conversion therapy on the other side, including Michael. And they met in a church basement. And it is hard to watch because these survivors are talking directly to the current leaders and members of Exodus, telling them, this is how you hurt us. 
this is how you hurt kids and kids are killing themselves because of what you say. It is hard to watch, guys. I can't imagine how difficult it would be to sit in that room. Ugh. Right. I mean, there's really nothing else. I kind of would like to go and watch this just because, I don't know. It just, I would like to understand what was said to the degree that it caused a bunch of people in this room to change their tune here. Right. And not just that. So Randy said when he saw the show, he knew that was it. It was done. Um, the 2013 annual convention, they have someone get up and make a statement that Exodus was started in 1976 to create a community to get help. They realize they've hurt people. And so they've decided to close the doors, to disband, as it were. And so I'm sure there were, I mean, there are a lot of people who started living more genuine lives from this. So mm-hmm. Randy and Julie, um, John, well, John was already kicked out, I guess. But there are some that, that move just created new churches, right? So restored hope network is essentially the same thing. They just name it something new and it's doing the same exact shit. So they just made new names for the same thing. Repackaged it. Right. And like, Anne Polk is still a spokesperson. John's wife, ex-wife. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And an ex-lesbian, which is what makes me think yeah. he doesn't have a relationship with his kids. If she's still part of the movement. Yeah, that feels like there are definitely lines drawn there, but we've, you know, that's just our speculation. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so it's really unfortunate that there's a picking up of the torch that Exodus put out and they're continuing on. Mm-hmm. And conversion therapy still exists. We do see Julie and Amanda's wedding. Um, we see Julie in church a lot too. So it looks like she's still part of a church, one that accepts everyone, I would think. Because she seems to be speaking to a group of people. She seems to be, you know, still a leader in that capacity, if you will. But for good. And she talks about how she had to separate Jesus from the Christians who hurt her. And I'm like, oh, yeah, girl, good luck. Go be friends with Jesus, though. I mean, that's what she wanted. Right. Absolutely. So we see Julie and Amanda's wedding in that church. And it's beautiful. And it's full of love. And... It's just it's just nice to see people who are able to heal. And I hope writing the book was somewhat cathartic and hopefully they still get therapy in that. Um, she's a very supportive partner, it looks like, which is good. Can we say her partner, Amanda, looks just like Rachel Maddow? Like, just like her. Yes. Yeah, I thought the same thing. <laughs> but yeah, they seem really supportive of one another. And Julie says that she's never been healthier, happier in her whole life. And she wishes that people could see that you can leave this enforced ex-gayness and be okay on the other side. And, you know, when you're in it, nobody talks about that. So it's a real act of bravery to leave. Oh, it is because you're leaving everything behind. Everyone, you know, is part of that group. And so, yeah. You have to start over. Mm-hmm. And you have some of the leaders talking about how hard it was. So Randy talks about after coming out again, someone came up to him and was like, you have blood on your hands. And he, he knows that. He feels a lot of guilt and pain for the hurt that they caused. But they thought they were doing what they were supposed to do at the time. That doesn't rationalize it. That doesn't make it easier for them to deal with now. 
that they were doing what they thought God wanted them to do. They believed they had a calling, right? And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's, this doc- documentary was different than I thought it would be in this regard. I thought I was just going to be like enraged the whole time because sometimes in the ones we watch, they are like that. But in this, I think they really helped preserve the humanity of people that were at the front of this movement and are now trying to make amends by speaking out against it. And that's a tough position to be in, be like, look, I know I told you guys to listen to me before, and now I'm telling you to listen to me now. And, you know, but it's not a forceful way. It's just like, look, I'll, I'll testify. I'll, I'll let you know what it was like and, and how to maybe fight them a little bit more. But um, they know it doesn't make up for what they were doing to everybody. Yeah. And Michael ends it on as long as homophobia exists in the world, groups like Exodus will exist. And he's right. It'll make people feel like they need to change. So there were some blurbs they posted up at the end. So approximately 700,000 people have gone through a form of conversion therapy in the U.S. A national survey found that LGBTQ youth who experienced conversion therapy were more than twice as likely to attempt suicide. And Ricky Shelley and Impulk denied requests for interviews. Of course they did. Sure. Yeah. So I felt good after watching this. Um, I think it's a really heavy topic. I feel empowered if I were to have a conversation with someone who thought this was a good thing. I mean, I just feel like my arguments would be better structured. And that was really my takeaway from this. I think, yeah, it was educational. It was interesting to hear from people who had been in. And it's not just from the outside saying, look what they're doing. So that's always good to have that perspective and that knowledge. And then to see that most of them seem to be doing all right now on the other side. That's not to say that everyone made it out alive, as they've discussed, but hopefully people start accepting themselves a little bit more. Yeah. And maybe people will fucking quit this shit. So it would be nice. Yeah. Okay. So this has been... An educational month. Mm -hmm. Some bits are harder than other bits, but we've reached the end. And so to cleanse the palate, we need to do something super fluffy and nonsense. So what are we doing next week, Erin? Oh, boy. We're going to do a documentary (laughs) called Pucker Up. It may also be known as Pucker Up, the fine art of whistling. This follows a group of people to the 2004 National Whistling Convention. And um, I found this today on YouTube. It exists in its entirety. This is a 2005 release. So it's slightly over. And running a quick hour and 16 minutes. I cannot wait. I cannot wait. Oh, I can't either. It's going to be amazing. I can't whistle to save my fucking life. So I'm going to be in all of all these folks. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be fun, you guys. So come along with us for the ride. Yeah. Let's take a nice cleansing breath this week um, <laughs> and get into something just silly as hell. So be good. Yeah. So come find us on our website at Go Doc Yourself. And we're on the Twitters and the Instagrams at Go Doc Yourself. So come leave comments. Come give us suggestions, whatever you want. We're there. We're here for it. Sounds good. And until then, we'll talk to you next week, guys. Laters. Bye.